Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alrighty. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning, but I'm only going to read two verses out of it. So we're going to read verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6 from Nehemiah. So I would encourage you that if you're able to please stand as we read from the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15. So so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it. Thank you that you have preserved it. And thank you now, Lord, that we have such free and open access to it. So, Father, this morning I would ask that as, as I speak, that I would be neither seen nor heard. But, Lord, that you would be heard clearly, that your word, that its truth and its power might go forth. And that by your Holy Spirit you would come and he would make your word live. That it would begin to live in our hearts and our minds in a, in a precious and powerful way. A way that gives us life that gives us strength, that molds us, that shapes us into the image of Christ. Father, where there is a lack of clarity in what I say today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would bring correction and clarity to it, that you would give our hearts and our minds focus to listen, to hear, to understand, and to obey. So Father, now as we read your word, we just pray that you would teach us through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a seat. So, we've been talking about Nehemiah and, and what he was trying to do, and that was rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem after return from exile. And kind of the big point of this today is, is that when God's work is done God's way, it will find adversity it will find opposition so the question is how do we respond to that adversity and opposition in such a way as to make sure that God is ultimately honored even though his work is opposed how can we assure that he is honored in what's been done so as we look at it here we can see that the construction on the wall has been going very well but the people who are the enemies of God did not like that at all Um, if we go back up um, to verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, 
Sanballat and Geshem, Geshem said to, came, sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Nehemiah had received resistance ever since he had been there to one degree or another from this crowd of people. And what, we'll, what we see as we go through is that he was receiving resistance and opposition not just from the outside, not just from, from Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, but he was also receiving pressure and resistance and opposition from the inside, from the priests and the prophets of Judah who were there, the noble people. They didn't like this either. Because, as we'll see later, part of, for Nehemiah, this was more than about rebuilding a wall. This was about rebuilding the culture and the people. And there was a lot of um, kind of dishonest business going on, taking advantage of poor people, that sort of thing. And the nobles were benefiting from that, and they didn't like him being there. But we've got to remember, when we do God's work in God's way, it will always always encounter opposition. Paul wrote this to, to a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's true for our individual lives. It's true for our church. If we try to live like Jesus, if we try to live the way God would have us to live, we will receive persecution, resistance, obstruction, anything we try to do. We will always find that opposition. Again, whether that's in our personal lives or this church, as this church tries to follow God's direction, His leading, His vision, it will encounter opposition. And that opposition will come primarily in the form of people. You know, church would be wonderful if there were no people in it. <laughs> right? It would be really great because that's the problem with church is the people. And ultimately... That's where our, our biggest opposition is going to come from, is from people, either people on the outside or on the inside, sometimes both. But we'll see that if we respond to this opposition in a godly way, what will happen is, is that we will be blessed and God will be honored and glorified, which is our ultimate goal and what we want to, want to do. Before I go any further, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer, something for you to think about. Because as I talk today, uh, our, our minds tend to race. Oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear that. They really need to hear that. <laughs> um, I encourage you today to examine yourselves. Because the possibility for all of us is that, number one, we could be the opposition. We could be the resistance to God's work. Very easily, and it'd be very easy to justify and rationalize while we do it. So keep in mind that sometimes we're actually the opposition. The second thing I, I want to say is just because you're receiving resistance does not necessarily mean you're doing God's work. You might be doing something wrong, and what you're receiving is not resistance, but it is correction, it is discipline. So we've got to search those things out. We have to. So just because somebody is automatically, just because you're receiving some sort of resistance or opposition, don't think, all right, we're right on the right track. We're doing God's work. That is not the first question. The first question is to back up and say, wait a minute, is this legitimate? So just kind of those two disclaimers. So I want us to see the opposition 
that that Nehemiah faced here. It was pretty pretty intense, pretty severe from these fellows. Um, so we see that they they said, "Come, let us meet together." And, and but he said, "But they intended me to do harm." And he says, "And so I sent messengers in verse three. I sent messengers to them saying." I am doing great. I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So here was the, here was the trap. It was a congenial invitation. It was like, hey Nehemiah, come on over to the house. We'll have a barbecue. We'll hang out. Well, tell us how it's going. You know, so. It's, they were very nice. It was an invitation. It was an invitation for reconciliation and relaxation. And they were doggone persistent about it. They sent that invitation four times. But Nehemiah, through, through godly discernment, understood that they intended to do him harm. They intended to take him out somewhere behind a rock and kill him. They're going to kill him, and that's going to be the end of him. But his response is interesting to him, you know, because this is a congenial invitation. And, and he doesn't say, I'm not coming because you guys were planning on killing me. That's not what he says. Notice how he responds. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Basically, he says, look, guys, I'm busy doing God's work right now. I can't, I don't have time for that. Right? I'm doing God's work. And so he stayed focused on that task. And the same is going to be true for us because when we're doing God's work, sometimes, you know, people generally aren't planning on kidnapping and killing us, hopefully. Hopefully you're a little more popular than that. But, you know, it's so easy for us to get distracted from the, God, the work God has called us to do by these secondary peripheral things, these polite invitations to do other things. I have a friend who's a pastor, and I've told him he has got to learn. There's a word he has got to learn. No. You've got to learn no. Because he is doing something all the time, and he's just wearing himself out. And I'm like, man, you have got to learn how to tell people no. Focus on what God's given you to do. And I think that's true for us, too, as individuals in our individual lives as followers of Jesus and as a church, too, because sometimes you can get, okay, we're going to do this. Ooh, look at the new shiny thing. Let's go do this. Oh, look at this. This is, this is lights. Let's go do this. And, and so we start chasing these things. They are nice things. They may even be good things. But they're not the thing that God has called us to do. When we are certain of God's call on our life and on our ministry, focus on that and pursue that at all costs. Never lose sight of that vision and calling. Constantly seek it out. Constantly refine it through Scripture and prayer and fellowship with one another. Okay, so that's what he did. So, the, so they come at him first. They're trying to trick him so they, can, so they can kidnap him and kill him. But he didn't fall for it, so... Let's go to verses 5 through 9 and see what they tried next. It says, In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is, what you, that is why you are building the wall. 
And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim you, proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you, inv- you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all they wanted, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So this was a different kind of ploy. This was a different kind of tactic. Notice what they did. Again, it's it's very congenial. It's polite. And so Nehemiah, I, people are talking. I just want you to know. There are people out there who are saying, the reason you're building this wall is you intend to make yourself the king. And gosh, Nehemiah, we don't want that to get around, so maybe you should come over and we'll see if we can, if we can help you to squash this rumor, to squash this gossip. Now, of course, who was the source of the gossip? They were, right? And he was smart enough to know that. But this was intimidation through gossip. It was a, it, it was an allegation. It, there was basically, um, it was extortion or blackmail. I'm not sure what the difference is. Maybe somebody can explain that to me technically. But, but anyway, um, they, were, they were trying to force him into stopping by making a false accusation. And this was a false accusation, mind you, that would have gotten his head taken off. Right? Because the king would have come in if this, if this had gotten back and it would have been the end of Nehemiah. But he knew that. He understood it. In verse 9 he says, for, all, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. He, again, wise and godly discernment. He said, these guys are only after one thing and that's that this wall not be finished. It's all, that's what they care about and that's what this is about. And so he tells them, he says, you guys are making this up. And so he just ignores them. And notice his response. He, he, he goes on in verse 9, at the end of verse 9. And he says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now this was a very real threat. It was not an idle threat. Because again, if this becomes public, and this goes out, and this goes to the king... And the king investigates it. It could come out badly for Nehemiah. So this is a real thing to frighten him. But he says, he says, no, you're making this up. There's no truth to it. But Lord, please strengthen me. Please help me. It's interesting what he does and what he doesn't do. I think it can be instructive for us. But it could also be exceptionally difficult. They're making these, these public assertions because it says it's an open letter. So it's, it's already, they're already kind of letting it creep out, this rumor. And it's interesting to me that he does not answer that publicly. He does not start an ad campaign. He does not hire a marketing firm. He does not hold a press conference. He simply says, no, it's not true. Let's get back to work. Because... He went to the source of that, his vision and his strength, and he went to God, and he said, Lord, take care of this. Lord, this is yours. This is your work. This is your vision. I am yours. I am your servant. So strengthen me. Strengthen the hands of all these people involved in this work and make this happen. How many of us could do that? If somebody was willfully, maliciously spreading gossip about you, 
in the, with the intention of hurting you publicly or professionally or in the church. How many of us could do what Nehemiah did and simply go, guys, that's not true. I'm going back to work. But you see, he, he did. And the reality is, if somebody did that to me, I'm, I'm looking for somebody's nose to punch or, or you know, throat to strangle or something like that. Because, you know, I have somebody, um, my mother-in-law, she was, she was pretty funny, and she, she always had a saying. She says, I don't get even, I get ahead. <laughs> right? And so, so I didn't mess with her too much. <laughs> But, um, but anyway, she was really sweet. She was just teasing, but she would say that. And, um, and that's how we are, right? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You say something bad about me, I might not say anything bad about you, but I'm certainly going to defend myself publicly as strongly as I can. But Nehemiah did something that's interesting to me here. He just said, Lord, you take care of it. Lord, you handle it. You see, when people are focused on the vision and the mission and the work that God has given them to do, they are very hard to offend. Because they don't care. They don't care about anything but the work that God has given them to do. Lord, you take care of these guys. However you work this out, Lord, I'm good with it. I'm going to go do the work you gave me to do. And hopefully I'll get it finished. But if not, I'm sure you got somebody else lined up to finish it for me. That's what the Lord did for Nehemiah. And that's the same sort of thing He could do for us. But the reality is, the way He responded, I'm not going to say it's humanly impossible, but it's humanly very improbable. It's, we just don't have that capacity to do that naturally. And so we need to seek that grace. We can't live a holy, godly life like this in our own strength and in our own power. Again, if I'm trying to rely on my own strength, I'm holding press conferences, I'm holding, um, you know, I'm sending out media alerts, I'm, I'm tracking people down, I'm calling them names at some point, you know, chasing after their skeletons in the closet or whatever. And yet, what I need to do is to be like Nehemiah, who's actually a picture of Christ here. Because if you remember Jesus, they spit on Him, they called Him names. They insulted him. And what did he do? Nothing. He didn't respond. To the point that Pilate was amazed. I'm, ana I'm pretty amazed at Nehemiah. So there was this, this open opposition. Then there was this veiled accusation. And then third, there was a, a temptation. Verses 10 through 14. This was a, a little bit more complicated. It says, Now when I went into the house of Shammai, the son of Delilah, son of Meditable, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because of Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so that he could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. 
Remember to buy and send Bilet, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodai and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the, the trick was this. They hire this guy. Seems like a fairly reputable guy. And he comes to Nehemiah and he says, Nehemiah, you got to get out of town. You got to go hide in the temple. They're coming to kill you tonight. You got to run. I mean, they're, they're coming. But Nehemiah, again, he understood through godly wisdom, godly discernment, that for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now, he would have discredited himself in two ways. And this would have been very important. Number one, he would have looked like a coward. All this big talk, Nehemiah, all this power, all this trust in God. Oh, and you ran and hid when you thought somebody was coming to get you. But the other, and perhaps the more pressing thing that would be lost on us a little bit, is he was trying to get him to flee into the temple. The temple was reserved only for priests. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was a politician. He was a bureaucrat. He didn't belong in there. So to go in there would have, would have tainted him in a spiritual, ceremonial way, in a public way. It would have disgraced him had he gone. It would have ruined him. And he knew that and he understood that. And so he was not going to give them any grounds to discredit them. Now, again, as we think about trying to follow Jesus in this world and bear his name, the same is true for us. The world is watching. I don't think I've ever seen a news story that said, Pastor, married to wife for 46 years, never had an affair, never stole any money, never did anything wrong, only helped people. You've never seen that news story, have you? No. But I can name a lot of pastors that have been married to their wives for 50, 60 years, never had an affair, never stole any money, never did anything but good things in the service of their king. Yet that didn't make the papers. But what did make the papers? The pastor who cheated on his wife, the pastor who stole money, the pastor who, who bought a Learjet, which is, he deserved to be in the paper. But, but, um, but, you know, so it's always the bad things. And so the reality is, folks, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're really going to follow Jesus and talk about the gospel and talk about the truth of Scripture, then that puts us in a place where we are constantly being watched. And the world is going to look, and they're going to look for any any chink in the armor. They're going to look for any flaw. And they're going to seize on that. And so we need to be careful. We need to understand that we don't represent ourselves. We represent Jesus in this world. And so when we, what we say, what we do, what we watch, what we read, how we, what we wear or how we wear it, all these things, that are, and a million other things, they, they come out and they say, if we follow Jesus... We've got to understand we are his representatives in this world. And the world's going to look at us and they're going to base their opinion of Jesus on us. Right or wrong, fair or unfair, that's the reality. And Nehemiah understood that he was God's representative here. 
And he was not going to dishonor God by turning tails and running and doing something that was clearly forbidden in God's word. It's interesting here in verse 14, he again asked for God's protection, but in verse 14, he's, um, he says, Remember to buy and send Bilat, oh my God, according to these things they did. Now, I don't know, but I don't think he said, God, I don't think that was remember them in a good way. Right? I think this was, remember what they did, Lord. I'm, I'm leaving justice to you. He left the vengeance to God. This is where it can become very hard for us as well. Surrendering ourselves to God the way Nehemiah surrendered himself to God means that we fully surrender our rights, our desires, and we say, Lord, I'm yours. You bought me at a great price. Whatever you want, however you want to use me, however you don't want to use me, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to bring into my life, that's what I'm willing to have happen, Lord. Because I belong to you. And that's a difficult task. To rely on God's justice and His timing sometimes. Because the reality is, we will not always see God's justice in this world and in this lifetime. Sometimes people will receive God's justice when Jesus returns. And that's going to be it. The wicked do prosper. And they do just great. And the righteous suffer the world we live in and that is an incredibly difficult task but that is the task that we are called to do when we are doing God's work if we want to be faithful if we want to be like Nehemiah we've got to surrender ourselves fully and completely to him and say Lord I am yours I'm not going to fight for myself I'm not going to fight for my rights and my desires Lord I'm going to leave that up to you what you want what you desire that's what I want you to bring Lord I'm going to do the work that I know you've given me to do. The rest is up to you. It's a very hard thing to do. But Nehemiah, when he faced this opposition, he responded rightly because he stayed focused. He never lost his sight of that God-given vision. He sought grace. He always sought his strength and comfort in God, not in himself, not in other people. And he completely surrendered himself. He took no care for his own rights or needs. He cared only for God's honor. So what happened? Well, the reality is this was a difficult task even if things went well. These walls had laid in ruins for nearly more than a century. It was four and a half miles long, 16 feet high, a bunch of big rocks, a bunch of it crumbled, no bobcats, no cranes, no general contractors on staff, right? They, these were a bunch of people who didn't know what they were doing. And um, they didn't have any building inspectors, though, so that probably helped speed things along. Um, and there were constant threats and opposition to this project. But what happened? This wall, four and a half miles, 16 feet high, con under constant opposition, constant threats, a bunch of people didn't know what they were doing, was rebuilt in 52 days. God used His people. He used Nehemiah as a man of vision, as a leader, and He took these people, this People had no idea what they were doing. And he rebuilt this wall, rebuilt the wall in 52 days, less than two months. This construction project was complete. This construction project that on some levels looked impossible. And when that happened, Nehemiah was vindicated and God was vindicated. God was honored and Nehemiah was honored. I want you to notice how the enemies responded 
It says, verse 15 says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The enemies of this work were first off frightened. They were afraid. They had lost all confidence in themselves and their abilities, but they were not afraid of Nehemiah. They were not afraid of the, the Israelites who had returned. That's not what they were afraid of. And they were also humbled. They were humbled and put in their place, not because Nehemiah was so much smarter than them, so much wiser, so much braver. They were frightened and they were humbled because they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. When God's work is done in God's way, He receives the credit and the praise and not His people. Nehemiah had not relied on his own strength, on his own wisdom, on his own anything to get this task done. Even when opposition arose, he didn't try to take care of it himself. But he said, Lord, this is your work. This is your vision. This is your mission. You do it. You accomplish it. You finish it. And so this should be our goal, the same goal as Nehemiah. Not our praise, not our honor, but God's praise and God's honor. If work is happening in a ministry, in a church, let's say, and you can do a lot of things in a church to engineer the appearance of success. You can do a lot of things. But the reality is, unless what is happening in a church and through a church can be explained only by the working of God, God will not receive glory. Because if you look at a church, the church up, uh, up the street and say, man, that church is booming. Ever since they got that new pastor, that place has exploded. And it was all tied back to this guy who's doing this great, he's a great preacher and a great whatever. And it's all tied back to this person. Or you go, man, that church over there, they've got amazing music. I mean, it's like listening to a great rock concert every time you go over there. Or, or if you go, you know, man, you would not believe the kids, the children's program this place has got. I mean, it's amazing. They got like slides and, and bounce houses and all this amazing stuff. And they're doing all this great work with kids and disciple them, and it's amazing. And all that stuff's great, and all that stuff's good, and that's all stuff, good and great stuff God can use. But if you look at it and you go, you know what? It looks like they're just really good marketers or really, or just a really great speakers, very personality-driven or whatever. If it can be explained by merely human means, God will not be glorified. And so what I believe a church should seek, this church, any church, is not what you can do. It's what can God do through us? That's the question. Right? Because when God is working in and through His people, He will receive the glory and not His people. And that's what we should be after. And that's what we should be doing. God does work for, through faithful people. But it is ultimately God who works. And when it is God who works doing His work in His way, He receives the glory. He receives the honor. He receives the praise. In the late 16th century, the Catholic Church had seen better days. It was at the time just embroiled and enshrouded in intense corruption. 
A lot of it around money. There was a pope at the time, Pope Leo X. Um, and he was not a nice human being. And he wanted people to talk about how great he was at a pope. So he had this vision, this vision to build this great church in Rome. Church in Rome we know today is St. Peter's Basilica. Some of you are familiar with it. It's an amazing place. But the fact is, even though he's a pope, he needed money. So he needed a way to collect money. And so they began to do, they, they intensified this thing um, that they had been doing called the sale of indulgences. And the way it worked, basically, Catholics believe in a concept called purgatory, which is sort of this intermediate state between life and death where you go and you have to kind of suffer and atone and have your sins purged out before you can go on to heaven. And, and you, you go at, at, at different, you know, different, depending on how bad you were, how good you were, or whatever. I think martyrs are like the only ones that get to skip purgatory, martyrs and saints maybe. But all us regular people have to go to purgatory, Catholic theology. And you can be in there for a long time. And so this guy would roll into town, and, um, and, he, would, and he would get everybody up, and he would start talking about how awful purgatory was. And he would start talking about, um, I'll, just, uh, I'll just pick Lee. He said, Lee, right now your grandpa Lee is burning. He is suffering. He is just in agony, and he's going to be in agony for, for we don't know how long, for a long time. But if you give me $500, I can get like 10,000 years knocked off his sentence in purgatory. <laughs> Seriously, that's what they were doing. I mean, and if you believed in purgatory, and if you believed your grandpa or your mom or your dad or whoever was, it was suffering like that, what are you going to do? going to cough up the cash, right? And that's what they were doing. And so it, it had actually gotten to this, there was this one guy who was real famous, and he had a little, um, he had a catchy little good marketing slogan. It went, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So that's pretty catchy, right? <laughs> right? It's like you throw a coin in there, and pop, somebody gets out of purgatory and goes to heaven. And, and that was like, and, and they were making scads of cash on this and just abusing people. Well, there was, a, there was a monk at the time who didn't like it. He was a Catholic monk, and he said, he starts looking at the Bible, and he starts looking at this and saying, wow, that's sort of, I mean, because ultimately the, the coin, the money takes the place of the cross, right? That becomes a means of atonement, a means of salvation. And he says, this cannot be right. And he gets, he gets very agitated about it. And so on October 31st, 1517, this monk in this little town, this German town of this place called Wittenberg, he goes up to the church doors, which I, it kind of acted like a public bulletin board, so it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds. And he had written out these 95 theses to talk about what was wrong with Roman Catholic theology, particularly the cell of indulgences, which was killing him. And, um, and he, not, he nailed it up there, and you may have heard of him. His name was Martin Luther. Some of you are probably familiar with him. Well, that did not go over well with Pope Leo or anybody in the Catholic Church. And so um, in April of 1521, so it was like four years later, but stuff moved slowly then. They didn't have Twitter, so it <laughs> took a little bit longer for, for information to get around. And... Um, and they, they had at this place called Worms, they had a trial. 
And at the trial, copies of his books were laid out and all these things he, that, that Luther had written. And they were, he was asked, are these yours? And he said, yes. He says, and then they asked him, will you recant everything that was in it? Will you say, no, I, I deny that I was wrong. And basically this was going to be, hey, if you deny this and say this is wrong, we're, we're going to let you go. It's all right. And he says, I need to pray about it. Give me a day. So he goes and he prays about it. And so the next day he comes back, and here's Luther's response. Now, mind you, if he does not recant, it means certain death. Pope had incredible power. Some certain death. And yet this is his response. He says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by the clear or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Do you know how much nerve that took? To stand up against the Pope and the whole Catholic Church and say, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. God help me. So remind you, what Nehemiah said, Lord, give me strength. Lord, help me. Lord, this is your work. Now, of course, if you know anything about history, you know that Martin Luther did not recant at all, ever. And um, what happened that day led to this little thing called the Protestant Reformation, which made a huge deal in the history of Western civilization. We are here today because of men like Martin Luther, John Knox, John Calvin, um, and, and, and folks like that. These great reformers who took on the Catholic Church and said, no, Scripture says this. And they stood on that, even at threat to their lives. And so, what I would, again, as we think about Nehemiah, as we think about Martin Luther, these were men who were consumed with a passion for the glory of God. One of the rallying cries, the great rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation was... Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. And so, in our individual lives, in the life and the ministry of this church, what I would encourage us all to do, what I would plead for all of us to do, is to seek God's work, to seek God's vision, His mission, His calling, and to do God's work in God's way that He might choose in His grace and His mercy and His goodness to work in us and through us to accomplish that work just like He did with Nehemiah and to bring Himself and Him alone glory. Let's pray. Father, it is a remarkable thing that You choose to use people as flawed as us to do Your work. Even as we read Your Word, we constantly see flawed people. Nehemiah was flawed. Martin Luther was flawed. All through the history of the church, you've used flawed people to do amazing things. So Father, I would pray this morning that we would be flawed people that you would choose to use. That we would be flawed people that would seek your will, your wisdom, and your way. And that you would choose in your grace 
to work in us and through us to accomplish the work that you call us to do. And Lord, ultimately, that we would seek in all that we are and all that we do to bring you glory. Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, that we might, as Nehemiah did, come and surrender ourselves wholly and completely to you, Lord. That you would use us or not use us in any way that you see fit, in any way that brings you pleasure, and most importantly, in any way that would bring you glory. Now unto you that is able to keep us from falling, unto you that is able to present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.